Book Three, Part Three of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Three, August Seventeenth to August Twenty Fourth, eighteen sixty two. August 17th. Another Sunday. Strange that the time, which should seem so endless, flies so rapidly. Miriam complains that Sunday comes every day, but though that seems a little too much, I insist it comes twice a week. Let time fly, though, for each day brings us so much nearer our destiny, which I long to know. Thursday we heard from a lady just from town that our house was standing the day before, which somewhat consoled us for the loss of our silver and clothing, but yesterday came tidings of new afflictions. I declare we have acted out the first chapter of Job, all except that verse about the death of his sons and daughters. God shield us from that. I do not mind the rest." While he was yet speaking, another came in and said, Thy brethren and kinsmen gathered together to wrest thine abode from the hand of the Philistines, which pressed sore upon thee, when, lo, the Philistines sallied forth with fire and sword, and laid thine habitation waste and desolate, and I only am escaped to tell thee. Yes, the Yankees, fearing the Confederates might slip in unseen, resolved to have full view of their movements, so put the torch to all eastward, from Colonel Mata's to the Advocate. That would lay open a fine tract of country alone, but unfortunately it is said that once started it was not so easy to control the flames, which spread considerably beyond their appointed limits. Some say it went as far as Florida Street, if so, we are lost, as that is a half-square below us. For several days the fire has been burning, but very little can be learned of the particulars. I am sorry for Colonel Mata, such a fine brownstone front, the finest in town. Poor Minna, poverty will hardly agree with her. As for our home, I hope against hope. I will not believe it is burnt until somebody declares having been present on that occasion." Yet so many frame houses on that square must have readily caught fire from the sparks. Wicked as it may seem, I would rather have all I own burned than in the possession of the negroes. Fancy my magenta organdy on a dark beauty. Bah, I think the sight would enrage me. Miss Jones's trials are enough to drive her crazy. She had the pleasure of having four officers in her house, men who sported epaulettes and red sashes, accompanied by a negro woman, at whose disposal all articles were placed. The worthy companion of these gentlemen walked around selecting things with the most natural airs and graces. This, she would say, we must have, and some of those books, you know, and all the preserves, and these chairs and tables, and all the clothes, of course, and, yes, the rest of these things. So she would go on, the gentleman assuring her she had only to choose what she wanted, and that they would have them removed immediately. 
Madame thought they really must have the wine and those handsome cut-glass goblets. I hardly think I could have endured such a scene, to see all I owned given to Negroes, without even an accusation being brought against me of disloyalty. One officer departed with a fine velvet cloak on his arm. Another took such a bundle of Miss Jones's clothes that he had to have it lifted by someone else on his horse, and rode off holding it with difficulty. This I heard from herself yesterday, as I spent the day with Lily and Mother at Mr. Elder's, where she is now staying. Can anything more disgraceful be imagined? They all console me by saying there is no one in Baton Rouge who could possibly wear my dresses without adding a considerable piece to the belt. But that is nonsense. Another pull at the corset strings would bring them easily to the size I have been reduced by nature and bones. Besides, oh horror, suppose instead they should let in a piece of another color. That would annihilate me. Pshaw! I do not care for the dresses. If they had only left me those little articles of father's and Harry's, but that is hard to forgive. August nineteenth, yesterday two colonels Shields and Bro, both of whom distinguished themselves in the battle of Baton Rouge, dined here. Their personal appearance was by no means calculated to fill me with awe, or even to give one an idea of their rank, for their dress consisted of merely cottonade pants, flannel shirts, and extremely short jackets, which, however, is rapidly becoming the uniform of the Confederate States. Just three lines back, three soldiers came in to ask for molasses. I was alone downstairs, and the nervous trepidation with which I received the dirty, coarsely clad strangers, who, however, looked as though they might be gentlemen, has raised a laugh against me from the others who looked down from a place of safety. I don't know what I did that was out of the way. I felt odd receiving them as though it was my home, and having to answer their questions about buying by means of acting as telegraph between them and Mrs. Carter. I confess to that, but I know I talked reasonably about the other subjects. Playing hostess in a strange house, of course it was uncomfortable, and to add to my embarrassment, the handsomest one offered to pay for the milk he had just drunk. Fancy my feelings as I hastened to assure him that General Carter never received money for such things, and from a soldier besides it was not to be thought of. He turned to the other, saying, "In Mississippi, we don't meet with such people. Miss, they don't hesitate to charge four bits a canteen for milk. They take all they can. They're not like you Louisianians." I was surprised to hear him say it of his own state, but told him we thought here we could not do enough for them. August twentieth, last evening, after hard labor at pulling molasses candy, needing some relaxation after our severe exertions, we determined to have some fun. Though the sun was just setting in clouds as watery as New Orleans milk, and promised an early twilight. All day it had been drizzling, but that was nothing. So Anna Badger, Miriam, and I set off through the mud to get up the little cart to ride in, followed by cries from the elder ladies of, "Girls, soap is a dollar and a half a bar. Starch a dollar a pound. Take up those skirts." 
We had all started stiff and clean, and it did seem a pity to let them drag, so up they went. You can imagine how high, when I tell you my answer to Anna's question as to whether hers were in danger of touching the mud was, not unless you sit down. The only animal we could discover that was not employed was a poor old pony, most appropriately called Tom Thumb, and him we seized instantly, together with a man to harness him. We accompanied him from the stable to the quarter where the cart was, through mud and water, urging him on with shouts and cries, and laughing until we could laugh no longer at the appearance of each. The cart had been hauling wood, but that was nothing to us. In we tumbled, and with a driver as diminutive as the horse, started off for Mr. Elder's, where we picked up all the children to be found, and went on. All told we were twelve, drawn by that poor horse who seemed at each step about to undergo the ham process and leave us his hindquarters while he escaped with the four ones and harness. I dare say we never enjoyed a carriage as much, though each was holding a muddy child. Riding was very fine, but soon came the question, how shall we turn, which was not so easily solved, for neither horse nor boy understood it in the least. Every effort to describe a circle brought us the length of the cart farther up the road, and we promised fair to reach Bayou Serra before morning at that rate. At last, after fruitless efforts to dodge under the harness and escape, Pony came to a standstill and could not be induced to move. The children took advantage of the pause to tumble out, but we sat still. Bogged, and it was very dark already. Wouldn't we get it when we got home? Anna groaned, Uncle Albert. Miriam laughed, The General. I sighed, Mrs. Carter. We knew what we deserved, and darker and darker it grew, and Pony still inflexible. At last we beheld a buggy on a road nearby, and in answer to Morgan's shouts of, Uncle, Uncle, come turn our cart, a gentleman jumped out and in an instant performed the Herculean task. Pony found motion so agreeable that it was with the greatest difficulty we prevailed on him to stop, while we fished seven children out of the mud as they pursued his flying hoofs. Once more at Mr. Elder's we pitched them out without ceremony, and drove home as fast as possible, trying to fancy what punishment we would receive for being out so late. Miriam suggested as the most horrible one, being sent to bed supperless. Anna's terror was the general's displeasure. I suggested being deprived of rides in future, when all agreed that mine was the most severe yet. So as we drove around the circle, those two set up what was meant for a hearty laugh to show they were not afraid, which, however, sounded rather shaky to me. I don't think any of us felt like facing the elders. Miriam suggested anticipating our fate by retiring voluntarily to bed. Anna thought we had best run up and change our shoes anyway. But at last, with her daredevil laugh, Miriam sauntered into the room where they all were, followed by us, and thrusting her wet feet into the fire that was kindled to drive away the damp, followed also by us, commenced a laughable account of our fun, in which we, of course, followed too. 
"'If I had fancied we were to escape scot-free, "'we would most surely have got a scolding. "'It is almost an inducement to hope always for the worst. "'The general did not mention the hour, "'did not prohibit future rides.' While we were yet toasting, a negro came in with what seemed a banknote, and asked his master to see how much it was, as one of the women had sold some of her watermelons to the three soldiers of the morning, who had given that to her for a dollar. The general opened it. It was a pass. So vanish all faith in human nature. They looked so honest. I could never have believed it of them but it looked so much like the shin-plasters we are forced to use that no wonder they made the mistake. To discover who had played so mean a trick on the poor old woman, the general asked me if I could decipher the name. I threw myself on my knees by the hearth, and by the flickering light read, S. Kimes, by order of C. H. Lusenberg, Provost Marshal, Onolona, Mississippi, with a gasp of astonishment that raised a burst of laughter against me. Thought he was taken prisoner long ago. At all events I didn't know he had turned banker, or that his valuable autograph was worth a dollar. August 21st. Miriam and mother are going to Baton Rouge in a few hours to see if anything can be saved from the general wreck. From the reports of the removal of the penitentiary machinery, state library, Washington statue, etc., we presume that that part of the town yet standing is to be burnt like the rest. I think, though, that mother has delayed too long. However, I dreamed last night that we had saved a great deal in trunks, and my dreams sometimes come true. Waking with that impression, I was surprised a few hours after to hear mother's sudden determination. But I also dreamed I was about to marry a federal officer. That was in consequence of having answered the question whether I would do so with an emphatic yes if I loved him, which will probably ruin my reputation as a patriot in this parish. Bah! I am no bigot or fool either." August 23rd. Yesterday Anna and I spent the day with Lily, and the rain in the evening obliged us to stay all night. Dr. Perkins stopped there and repeated the same old stories we have been hearing, about the powder placed under the State House and garrison, to blow them up if forced to evacuate the town. He confirms the story about all the convicts being set free, and the town being pillaged by the Negroes and the rest of the Yankees. He says his own slaves told him they were allowed to enter the houses and help themselves, and what they did not want the Yankees either destroyed on the spot or had it carried to the garrison and burned. They also bragged of having stopped ladies on the street, cut their necklaces from their necks, and stripped the rings from their fingers without hesitation. It may be that they were just bragging to look great in the eyes of their masters. I hope so for heaven help them if they fall into the hands of the Confederates, if it is true. I could not record all the stories of wanton destruction that reached us. I would rather not believe that the Federal Government could be so disgraced by its own soldiers. Dr. Day says they left nothing at all in his house, and carried everything off from Dr. Enders's. 
He does not believe we have a single article left in ours. I hope they spared Miriam's piano. But they say the soldiers had so many that they offered them for sale at five dollars apiece. We heard that the town had been completely evacuated, and all had gone to New Orleans except three gunboats that were preparing to shell before leaving. This morning Withers's battery passed Mr. Elder's on their way to Port Hudson and stopped to get water. There were several buckets served by several servants, but I took possession of one to their great amusement. What a profusion of thanks over a can of water! It made me smile, and they smiled to see my work, so it was all very funny. It was astonishing to see the number of Yankee canteens in the possession of our men. Almost all those who fought at Baton Rouge are provided with them. In their canvas and wire cases with neat stoppers, they are easily distinguished from our rough, flat tin ones. I declare I felt ever so important in my new situation as waiting-maid. There is very little we would not do for our soldiers, though. There is Mother, for instance, who got on her knees to bathe the face and hands of a fever-struck soldier of the Arkansas, while the girls held the plates of those who were too weak to hold them and eat at the same time. Blessed is the Confederate soldier who has even toothache when there are women near— what sympathies and remedies are volunteered. I always laugh, as I did then, when I think of the supposed wounded man those girls discovered on that memorable Arkansas day. I must first acknowledge that it was my fault, for seized with compassion for a man supported by two others who headed the procession, I cried, "'Oh, look, he is wounded!' "'Oh, poor fellow!' screamed the others, while tears and exclamations flowed abundantly, until one of the men, smiling humorously, cried out, "'Nothing the matter with him!' And on nearer view I perceived it was laziness, or perhaps something else, and was forced to laugh at the streaming eyes of those tender-hearted girls. August 24th, Sunday Soon after dinner yesterday two soldiers stopped here and requested permission to remain all night. The word soldier was enough for us, and without even seeing them, Anna and I gladly surrendered our room and said we would sleep in Mrs. Badger's instead. However, I had no curiosity to see the heroes and remained up here reading until the bell summoned me to supper, when I took my seat without looking at them, as no introduction was possible from their having refrained from giving their names. Presently I heard the words, That retreat from Norfolk was badly conducted. I looked up and saw before me a rather good-looking man, covered with the greatest profusion of gold cloth and buttons, for which I intuitively despised him. The impulse seized me, so I spoke. Were you there? No, but nearby. I was there with the first Louisiana for most a year. Do you know George Morgan? No, George. Yes, indeed. You are his sister. This was an assertion, but I bowed assent, and he went on. Thought so from the resemblance. I remember seeing you ten years ago when you were a very little girl. I used to be at your house with the boys. We were schoolmates. I remarked that I had no recollection of him. 
"'Of course not,' he said, but did not inform me of his name. He talked very familiarly of the boys, and said he had met them all at Richmond. Next he astounded me by saying he was a citizen of Baton Rouge, though he had been almost four years in New York before the war broke out. He was going to town to look after the property, hearing his father had gone to France. An inhabitant of that city, who was so familiar with my brothers and me, and with whom I was not acquainted. Here was a riddle to solve. Let us see who among our acquaintances had gone to France. I could think of none. I made up my mind to find out his name if I had to ask it. All through supper he talked, and when in country style the gentleman left us at table, I found the curiosity of the others was even more excited than mine. I was determined to know who he was then. In the parlor he made some remark about never having been in ladies' society the whole time he was in Virginia. I expressed my surprise, as George often wrote of the pleasant young ladies he met everywhere. "'Oh, yes,' said Monsieur, "'but it is impossible to do your duty as an officer and be a ladies' man, "'so I devoted myself to my military profession exclusively. "'Insufferable puppy,' I said to myself. "'Then he told me of how his father thought he was dead, "'and asked if I have heard of his rallying twenty men at Manassas, "'and charging a federal regiment which instantly broke. "'I honestly told him no.' Yago, the great boaster, I decided. Abruptly, he said there were very few nice young ladies in Baton Rouge. Probably so in his circle, I thought, while I dryly remarked, Indeed? Oh, yes. And still more abruptly, he said, Ain't you the youngest? Yes, I thought so. I remember you when you were a wee thing so high, placing his hand at a most insultingly short distance from the floor. "'Really, I must ask your name,' I said. He hesitated a moment, and then said in a low tone, "'De J.' "'De what?' I absurdly asked, thinking I was mistaken. "'A. De J.' he repeated. I bowed slightly to express my satisfaction, said, "'Anna, we must retire,' and with a good-night to my newly discovered gentleman went upstairs." He is the one I heard George speak of last December when he was here, as having been court-martialed and shot, according to the universal belief in the army. That was the only time I had ever heard his name, though I was quite familiar with the cart of De J. Pear as it perambulated the streets. My first impressions are seldom erroneous. From the first I knew that man's respectability was derived from his buttons— that is why he took such pride in them, and contemplated them with such satisfaction. They lent him social backbone enough to converse so familiarly with me, without the effulgence of that splendid gold, which he hoped would dazzle my eye to his real position, he would have hardly dared to remember me when I was a wee thing so high. Is he the only man whose coat alone entitles him to respectability? He may be colonel, for all I know, but still he is A. de J. to me. He talked brave enough to be a general. This morning I met him with a cordial, "'Good morning, Mr. de J.' 
anxious to atone for several snubs I had given him long before I knew his name last night. You see, I could afford to be patronizing now. But the name probably, and the fluency with which I pronounced it, proved too much for him, and after, "'Good morning, Miss Morgan,' he did not venture a word. We knew each other then. His name was no longer a secret.' End of Book Three, Part Three